I wonder if you feel under pressure as a Christian just at the moment. Um, life itself has many pressures. Some of them feel intolerable. I don't make light of those at all. But um, as a Christian, uh, there can be, and often are, additional pressures simply because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm thinking a home situation where any mention of Christ and his message is met with a frosty silence and a stony expression because your nearest and dearest in your family don't know, don't share, don't understand your faith. I'm thinking perhaps of a class or a lecture theatre where any challenge, challenge to secular humanism is dismissed with contempt. Or I'm thinking of a workplace where any mention of God's good plan for women and men is regarded as the height of intolerance. All of those kind of things and many others uh, Christians in this country are subject to. I'd like to say especially to those of you who are younger than me, and that's several of you, um, as far as I can tell, it will become more so. The difficulties, the pressures, and the challenges are looking as though they will become greater in this country. We haven't yet perhaps reached the point of systematic persecution of Christians, but in, uh, you know that in many parts of the world, our brothers and sisters are being systematically and bitterly persecuted. People like Asia Bibi, a Pakistani Christian woman and mother of five, who nearly ten years ago was in uh, a disagreement with her Muslim neighbours uh, because she took a cup of water from a shared water vessel and they thought it made the water unclean because she as a Christian had uh, taken from that vessel and so they picked an argument with her. Um, what has your Jesus ever done for you? Uh, apparently, allegedly, the story goes. Um, and her reply was, my Lord Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. What has your prophet Muhammad done for you? And those words led to her arrest, and she's been under arrest, under um, the sentence of execution by hanging ever since 2010. Many, a number of those years she spent in solitary confinement in declining health. Uh, and the appeals process has gone on and on and on, still with no resolution. And Aisha Bibi is just one of over 200 million Christians who are suffering persecution, bitter persecution, because they are Christians, beaten, killed, forcibly detained, churches and homes bombed and burned, their children abducted, oppressed, marginalised, denied education or job opportunities, labouring under the burden of relentless surveillance, unjust laws and endless discrimination. In the words of the charity, open doors. And it's that kind of pressure, either the relatively mild pressure that we experience as Christians in this country, the relatively mild oppression, where you may not feel it to be so, some of you, or the bitter and life-threatening persecution of many of our brothers and sisters, millions of them, 
worldwide. It's that kind of pressure that I want us to consider this evening as we consider together Psalm 5, because that was the kind of pressure, it seems, that David, or the person who wrote in the name of David, it's described as a psalm of David, either by or about David, it's that kind of pressure, because David was a man of God, a king appointed by God, it wasn't ordinary everyday pressure, it was pressure that came to him as a representative of God, and that kind of pressure is the pressure under which he is praying, under which we may find ourselves praying either for ourselves or on behalf of the persecuted church, and praying too that we find reflected in the life and ministry and work of Jesus Christ. If uh, you glance at the version of the Bible in the New International Version uh, in front of you, you'll see that it's uh, arranged in five sections. I'd like to say each of those in turn to raise a question and also to offer some kind of answer about what it means for David and for us and to a certain extent Christ himself be praying under this kind of pressure. So verses 1 to 3, I cry out, does God hear me? Well, let me ask you to think about it. When you pray to God, when you cry out to God, do you always feel and know and feel assured that your God hears, hears you? You sometimes not feel as though your prayers bounce back off the ceiling and there's nobody he, uh, uh, to, to hear you? Well, I think that the psalmist knew something of that experience because he goes on and on. <laughs> he doesn't just offer a prayer and sort of say, well, I've said my prayers this morning, that's good enough. He talks about his words, his sighing, his crying, his voice, his, his requests. It's a varied, intense, and very noisy <laughs> utterance of prayer. It strikes me that as far as I can tell, many, uh, much or most of the praying in the Bible is out loud praying. I wonder if we realize the benefit of saying our prayers, sometimes at least, perhaps more often than we do, out loud. To turn our thoughts and feelings into words, to make sure they are turned Godwards and heavenwards. That certainly seems to the experience, uh, certainly the experience of David here, and, uh, and I think of many of the others in the, in the Bible who utter prayer. Certainly true of our Lord. Um, uh, John chapter 17 occurs to me, our Lord's great high priestly prayer just before he went to his cross. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, <laughs> and somebody else must have heard it in order to write, the, write that prayer, the words of, those, that, of that prayer down. By the time we reach verse 3, however, we have an assurance that all this praying, all this pleading with God is heard. You hear my voice. I wait in expectation. Do we wait in expectation for God to respond to our prayers? Or do we offer our prayers too often with no hope of any response or answer? And when the answer or response does come, we don't even link it with the prayer because we've forgotten we'd offer the prayer. David is looking as, um, uh, as, as a footballer who aims 
the ball, a kick to, uh, of the ball towards the goal, looks for where it's, whether it's actually going to score a goal. As an archer aims the arrow towards the bullseye. So David aims his prayer and waits in expectation for an answer. Now, in this crying, in this pleading with God, in this not letting go until we get a blessing, we are not alone. We have a model, and that model is not only psalmist like we have seen here, but our Lord Jesus himself. As it's written in the great letter to the Hebrews in chapter 5, during the days of his life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. He offered up strong cries, groaning, even in the end crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he was heard. Now Adrian has spoken touchingly of death. And I'm very pleased that we are able, that we feel able to be in church and speak about death. Because if Christians can't speak about death, then who can? Jesus prayed to the one who could save him from death. That is to say, beyond death, because he did die. Christians die. God can, sometimes does, by a miracle, save us so that we don't die yet. But God can and does save his own son and those who are in Christ through and beyond death. Secondly, in verses 4 to 6, I'm oppressed, but does God care? Think about some of the kinds of gods that, are, um, that uh, people imagine they believe in. A few centuries ago, there was the god of the deists, the kind of god who made the universe, wound it up, and then let it go according to, to, its, to its own devices not knowing or caring what pitiful creatures like you and me think or feel or care about. Now, does God care? Do you feel as though God sometimes doesn't care about the way you or your Christian brothers and sisters feel uh, about their experiences? Does God care that there is so much evil in the world? Well, verses 4 to 6 make it very clear that the psalmist believes that God does care very much. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. David doesn't even pause here to do what we would do, which is to say, oh, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Now he goes straight through and sort of says, that's God's settled attitude towards sin, evil, and wickedness. You destroy those who tell lies, and so on. Now, I want to suggest to you this evening, this is very good news. To have a God who didn't care about evil and wickedness would make your life and mine utterly futile. Certainly your Christian faith and mine utterly futile. 
if you were badly treated, mocked, ridiculed, lied about, as many of your Christian brothers and sisters are around the world, to think that God didn't care about that would be a terrible thought. But God does care. It's good news that God cares about evil and wickedness. And when God's people are thus oppressed, there is one who stands with them. I don't know if you were here a few weeks ago when in all three of our uh, Sunday services we looked at the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25, his teaching about the sheep and the goats. And what we saw very clearly there, especially from this verse here, that the, the king, when he judges the sheep and the goats, will say this to them, whatever you did, let's put, let me put it, the, Jesus teaching this way, what, whatever you did for or whatever you did to one of the least of these my brothers, those who are in Christ, one of Jesus, the least, least of Jesus' disciples, you did for me. Jesus stands with even the least of his brethren, even the least of his disciples in their need. We are never alone, however the world treats us. Thirdly, verses 7 and 8. Because I wonder, when you looked at God's attitude towards evil and wickedness, whether you felt a slight shudder about, well, I'm not so brilliant either, I'm not so perfect either. Did you feel that? I kind of hope that you did. You say, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm good enough for God. He looks at, no, I don't think so. I am guilty too, and so are you. Let me just jump for a moment forward to verse 9, where the psalmist says this. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. He's speaking again about wicked people. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 3 and 13, uses that very verse to demonstrate that we all come under this judgment, that all are evil in God's sight. So there needs to be a way. Is there a way where if I'm counted amongst the guilty too, is there a way in which I can find acceptance, a welcome with God? And the psalmist says yes in verse 7. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house, will come into your presence, will find a welcome, an open door with you. The wicked are judged according to God's righteous judgment. Those who would come to God and enter his presence and find acceptance with him must find another way other than God's severe justice. They must find mercy with God. The story is told of a politician who, after receiving the, uh, his photograph was taken for a portrait, and once he saw the proof of the, of the portrait, he was very angry. He went back to the photographer saying, uh, this picture does not do me justice. 
And the photographer replied, Sir, with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need mercy. (laughs) And here's another old story. A mother who sought from a mother sought from an emperor the pardon of her son. And the emperor said that it was the man's second offence, and justice demanded that he be punished. But I'm not asking for justice, said the mother. I'm pleading for mercy. But, said the emperor, he doesn't deserve mercy. Sir, replied the woman, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is what I'm asking for. Well then, replied the emperor, I will show mercy. And her son was freed. It's a great and rich word, that biblical word, mercy. Hang on to it as your and my and our only hope of finding acceptance with God. Because I am guilty too. I need a way, a way of mercy for God to accept me. Can I show you the way? Can I show you the way more clearly? Well, no, I can't. But Jesus can because he is the way. Jesus has opened up a new and living way by his blood. And we are accordingly invited to draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of the faith. If I look at my meagre and imperfect righteousness, I fail. If I look to his great mercy in Christ, I have confidence to come into his presence as a child of God. Fourthly, evil seems to triumph in this world. Will the world ever be put to rights? This, I think, is addressed in verses 9 and 10. The psalmist says to God, Lord, declare them guilty, these people who oppress your people, these wicked people. Declare them guilty. Now, I don't know if you have a little bit of trouble with these expressions, these occasional expressions of the psalmist wanting God to judge and condemn the wicked. It's a bit awkward, isn't it? But one thing I will say is that David never... Um, seeks to wreak vengeance on them himself. He puts the whole, turns the whole thing over to God and say, God, that's your prerogative. The scripture says, uh, has God saying to us, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So this frees us up, all of us, to love our enemies as we are taught, to pray for them and to seek their forgiveness and salvation. It's God who judges and not we ourselves. A liberating truth. But of course, God's enemies can become his friends. I've been surprised, amazed really, at the number of times that scripture links together God's righteous judgment with his patience and mercy and forgiveness. Not least in a favourite chapter of mine, Second Peter and chapter 3, where Peter's talked about the end of the world. 
the judgment of the world, the ridding of the, uh, of the entire universe of evil and wickedness, the creation of a new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. And then he can hear his readers say, yes, but when? Why not now? And Peter gives this wonderful answer. The Lord is not slow in keeping that promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why doesn't God sort things out now? Why doesn't God put the world to rights now? Because of his patience. Let us not presume for one moment on the patience of God. And let our friends, who are perhaps not yet Christians, presume any longer on the patience of God who wants them to come through that new and living way through Christ to him. Fifthly, I feel lonely and afraid. Will God keep me safe? I'm experiencing life as a Christian under pressure. And I feel kind of on my own. I feel insecure. I feel afraid. Can I trust God to keep me safe? Verses 11 and 12. Can I just ask you a moment? Be honest with me now. In whom or in what do you trust? In whom or in what do you take refuge. There are so many superficial distractions in life in the world today in which people, ostrich-like, bury their heads and hope that the problems will go away. Don't bury your head in the sand. Lift your head up and look up to the, the only one who can keep you safe in this life and in the life to come. As verse 11 says, let all who take refuge in you be glad. Some beautiful thoughts in these verses. The idea in verse 11 of God spreading, even the word protection isn't in the text, spreading over them as a tent, a mantle, a cloak, a protecting veil. And then surrounding um, uh, God, his people with his favour as with a shield, a shield right around them so that nothing can eternally harm them. Because, again, we can point to the later and fuller revelation of God in Christ and say, as Christians, you and I can be and are safe in the arms of our Saviour Jesus. And again, I'm pleased that we've talked a little bit about death this evening. It seems to me that for many of us as Christians today, we are constantly thinking that God would save us from dying or our loved one from dying, and he can, and he does, and maybe he will. But it is appointed to us all to die sooner or later. And we need to know that there is a refuge beyond death. So Jesus says, I know my sheep, they know me, they listen to my voice, they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This then is the same Jesus who cried out to his heavenly Father and was heard. This is the same Jesus who who counts opposition to his people as opposition to himself. He stands with them. This is the same Jesus who has opened up a new and living way by which we can draw near to God. 
This is the Jesus who one day will judge the world with justice, but who promises that not one of his children who has put their faith in him and come to him through that new and living way, not one of his children will be lost. I think that's good news. I think that's reassuring. I think that's all something we can pray, even under the greatest pressure. Let us pray for a moment for ourselves and for our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, maybe experiencing so much more pressure than ourselves. Lord Jesus, we thank you that all the scriptures point to you. We thank you that you were a prayer and you you cried out to God and you were heard. We thank you that you stand with us and with our brothers and sisters in their difficulty and pressure and oppression. We thank you that you have opened up a new and living way for them and for us and for everyone. We thank you that you held out hope simply on the basis of repentance and forgiveness and that you have promised you will never let go of us. Be faithful to us and make us faithful to you, even under pressure, to the end of our days. Amen.